says that, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke it into being. And the word, his word, as we have it here, is a very powerful thing. Well, I want to speak to you this morning about the word of God as it was proclaimed in a very, very sophisticated culture to the very, very sophisticated and most powerful men of the world at that time. It was a culture of learning. It was a culture of great discipline, of of law-abiding citizens. It was a culture that was a polyglot. It had a lot of different kinds of races and ethnic groups, a lot of controversies. It had much, much diversity. It wasn't uh, the American Empire, though. It was the Roman Empire. And I, I, I was helped in thinking about our text this morning to think Uh, about the interface between the United States of America and Iraq and Islam. Now, I'm not meaning to compare Judaism and Christianity to Islam, but you have to look at how most Americans look at Islam, at the Muslim faith, and how exotic it is and how much trouble America has even getting Arabic speakers and writers to serve in the military so that they can interface the cultures we're dealing with. Well, this is somewhat what it was like for Rome to deal with Jews. They were a very, very weird and pugnacious. That means you're always sticking your head out and daring somebody to punch you. Uh, That's what the Jews were like. Still, uh, somewhat what the Jews are like. Bob's always sticking his face out, asking to be punched. (laughs) Um, Some jokes are inside. If you come Wednesday morning to our men's Bible study prayer group, you'll know why we joke like this. Anyhow, uh, the Jews were a very, very weird group of people to to the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire always had them a little bit at arm's length. They didn't quite know how to deal with Jews. Uh, the Jews held their faith extremely intensely. If, if there had been men like Martin Marty at the University of Chicago writing books back then, there would have been a whole series of books, a whole series of the fundamentalism project just on the Jews and Jerusalem. And, and, and they, they would have written about it as this thing that, you know, in many ways it was clear, the book was clear, the Quran, everything's clear. But what isn't clear is why they don't get it. They don't understand that we're past the day of religion being the preeminent thing. We're now decadent. We now all get along together. No one has any claim that I am the Lord and there is no other beside me, that all the gods of the nations are idols. Don't they get it? And you look at how America looks at, at, at Muslims, I think it's a lot like the ancient Roman Empire looked at, at Christians and Jews. Now, of course, there's a great irony to that. What's the irony? Well, the irony is that now Christians are the ones that supposedly are into diversity and are very tolerant and make no claims for their God that he is the exclusive God, deny the fact that he was the God behind Katrina, go on Larry King Live and say, well, it was just wind, you know. We read this morning, didn't we? All right. Didn't we read where God said in verse 7 of the chapter of his word of Isaiah 45, the one forming light and creating darkness, there's no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating what? Calamity. 
Now, this is not my word. This is God's word. And so any faithful servant of the Lord, any faithful servant of the Lord will never try to act as if the God behind Katrina was Satan or was just nature, Mother Nature. Gaia has all of a sudden become aggressive and hostile. I mean, it's just ludicrous. God made the heavens and the earth, and we don't need to protect God's reputation. Spurgeon said he'd rather defend a lion than defend God's word. All right, we don't need to defend him. What we need to do is show that we are people who love him, despite the fact that he's very dangerous. And if we deny the fact that God is dangerous, what will our neighbors and friends say to us when they stand before the judgment seat and find people cast into hell for all eternity? If we spend our time saying Katrina was God's impotence, what will they think? Will they think we have been faithful witnesses to God? No, they won't. We don't defend God from his acts. We don't deny God's omnipotence like another famous Christian leader who just after Katrina said, God, isn't it, isn't om, God is, is not omnipotent, which means all-powerful, which means God, again, didn't do Katrina. Now, you might say to me, if you're an unbeliever this morning, because a believer would never say this, but if you're an unbeliever, you might say to me, well, that makes God the author of evil. Well, no, it doesn't. And you say, how? And I say, the Bible says, and you say, oh, come on, that's a tautology. You're answering the Bible with the Bible. You can't do that. You have to argue with me from human perspective. You have to engage me on my level. I say, no, I do not engage you from your level. I either speak for the Almighty God from his word, or I'm a fool and you should shoot me right now. The Bible says that God is not the author of evil. And you say, Katrina was evil. Look at 1,000 people, 1,200 people killed. You're saying that God's the author of Katrina. Katrina's evil. And I say to you, does sickness and pain and death never accomplish the purpose of God? And is God's purpose not always good? And you say, well, again, that's a circular argument. It just doesn't work for me. And I say, no, but for those who believe, it works. Amen? And it does work for us. My father and mother, when they had three of their children taken by whom? Satan? Do you think God was impotent when my children, my parents' children were killed? They told me as I grew up that they were never as certain of the love of God as when they walked away from one of the fresh graves of their children. Now, what kind of a God is it that we today think in our sophistication we have to sell to America? A God of inclusivity, a God of diversity, a God of tolerance, a God who never is behind Katrina, a God who what? Is impotent. A God who is like Rabbi Kushner, who was quoted by one of those Christian leaders, a God who wishes that there weren't such suffering in the world, but can't stop it. And so we just have to be what? Stoics. And so we return to the ancient world and to, you know, all the Stoic philosophers and we just grin and bear it. No, this is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture says, I am the Lord, and beside me there is, there are how many others? How many others? There is no other. And so, as we look back into the ancient world and we see Rome sizing up Judaism and Christianity, we can think of today America as an empire sizing up Islam. And Islam is not interested in becoming a part of Western Europe or the United States. Make no mistake about it. 
Islam has no inclusive tradition. Islam is not interested in becoming a part of the great uh, sort of cosmic kind of uh, Baha'i kind of, you know, God's, you know, positive and upbuilding and affirming and uplifting. And if we follow our way and you follow your way, sooner or later we'll all get there. It's not Islam. Why? Because Islam is, is an ancient Christian heresy. All right. It's just a copy of the Old Testament without the new. That's all Islam is. And Islam has more knowledge of the God of Scripture than any American who would say those sorts of things. In other words, Islam has it right in saying it's exclusive. They just have it wrong in saying that God is not a God of love and not a God of mercy and not a God of grace. In Islam, God is a God of law. That's it. That's why Islam confesses publicly that God is not a father. Now, you might be scandalized. Why does a pastor of the Christian faith have any need to attack another religion? Aren't we above that? No, we're not above it. Because here in the Bible, it says, I am the Lord. And aside from me, there is what? No other. So if God himself reveals himself as being opposed to all the other gods, wouldn't a faithful pastor stand up and oppose the other gods? I mean, do you understand this? Again, this is not me having gotten up this morning and, and had a little bit too much coffee. You know, it's not that I'm dyspeptic. You know, I didn't take my antacid this morning, or in my case, baking soda. <laughs> okay, that's not why. You know, you hear the, you hear the statement, you know, uh, I love everybody. You know, well, generally, uh, I do find the world quite lovable, actually. Just drivers I don't like. <laughs> but God has spoken in his word. And we as Christians have to be faithful to it. Now, this morning, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking to you about the interface, not between us and the ancient world, the American empire, modern, cosmic, and the ancient world. But I want to take you, and actually it's not the text that's in your Bible, so therefore it's not the text that they're ready to put up. But it is in the book of Acts, and it's the 26th chapter, and I want to set the scene before we read it. The Apostle Paul is my great hero. Because the Apostle Paul lived in a very modern world. He lived in an empire. He was very mixed ethnically and traditionally. He grew up in one city, which was well known among the Romans. Then he spent most of his life in what city? In Jerusalem, studying under Gamaliel, who was the top scholar. So, in other words, he went off to university. And for the purposes of the Western world, it would be Oxford, it would be Cambridge, it would be Harvard, it would be Princeton. That's where Paul grew up. Now, all the other apostles, all right, grew up where? They grew up with dirt under their fingernails. I love it when I go home and my mother's been in the garden and I look at her hands. All right. All the other apostles grew up as unschooled, ordinary men. And then there was the apostle Paul. I don't love Paul because I think all Christians should be intellectuals. That's not the point. I love Paul because of the one thing he has in common with all the other disciples. But he had it in spades. And that is he was a man and he was a courageous man. And if he was going to kill Christians, he was going to be holding the cloaks and ready to take up the stones himself. And if he was going to die for Christ, he was ready to die every day until God finally let him die. And that's a perfect autobiography of Paul. 
He died every day until finally to die was gain. Now, we're picking up the story at the end of Paul's life. Now, remember, this is a real man. And this man has gone off to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to suffer and probably be in prison and probably die. He's had a meeting with the closest Christians that he loves in Miletus with the Ephesian elders. They've cried. They've kissed each other. They've hugged each other. And he says, I know I'm never going to see you again. Care for God's flock. And then he goes off to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he goes into the temple to fulfill his vows, but he avoids speaking in public. He has private meetings, private in households, as small groups as we have every Sunday afternoon. But he didn't make a public scandal of himself, but he knew the thunderclouds were rolling in and that lightning was going to strike. And sure enough, it did. Some Jews came up from Asia and the Jews accused the Apostle Paul of attacking everything that the Jewish faith stood for and therefore attacking their nation. Don't ever forget that that Judaism was not simply a religion. It was an ethnic uh, uh, national movement. All right. And so they say this man has attacked everything that we hold precious. If you turn back to, to chapter 21 of Acts and read verses 27 and 28, you'll see the very center of their attack on him. 21, 27 and 28, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing Paul in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel or, you know, uh, patriotic Americans come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And if you follow through the account of why Paul is, is, uh, is, 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 is arrested here and why he's on trial and why his life is in jeopardy, what you'll find is that the Apostle Paul has consistently done what we read, in fact, in Isaiah. In other words, he was faithful to the Old Testament. Namely, he kept saying to them, God has chosen now to shine the light of his grace on the Gentiles. Jews hated Gentiles. They had dirt. They, 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 they didn't eat the right food. They didn't worship the right God. All their lives, they'd been raised to despise the gleam, all right? They, they, they despise them. It would be like going uh, back a century and a half and having an American president get up and, and, and talk about the dignity of blacks. And then you've got, the, you know, you've got the Supreme Court even saying that the Constitution wasn't written you know, to, to give personhood and citizenship to, to blacks. All right? Think of how blacks and whites have despised each other. All right? And that's beginning to approach how much the Jews despise the Gentiles. They just despise them. And so when you see them attacking Paul, it would be like saying, you know, you've heard all you've all heard the stories of faithful pastors who in the south and sometimes in the north stood up for there being no segregation of whites and blacks in a church. You've heard these stories and, you know, pastors were often fired. You know, pastors still today, if they stood against the segregation of white and black, especially in the Deep South, would get fired. Okay, and so here Paul is standing up, if you will, for blacks 
And he's saying we're not going to have two different, uh, you know, up in the balcony and down below, back of the bus, front of. We're not going to do that anymore because God, in his mercy, has shown Gentiles the light of his grace. And so when you look at the attack here, it is not accidental that they say this man's against everything we stand for as a nation. This man is evil. This man is attacking our most sacred traditions and more. He's asking that we accept blacks into full membership of our church. But it's not blacks, it's Gentiles. All right. So none of us have any trouble understanding this. Will you be honest with me? Come on. We all understand it, right? Amen. Amen. All right. And so he gets busted. And right after they have this riot, uh, the Roman soldiers come in because it's a riot and that's never good for an empire. And they, 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 they take him in custody for his own protection, right? What does Paul do? Immediately when he's taken into custody, Paul has one thing on his mind. What is it? He will testify to his Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's all Paul thinks about. So as soon as he's taken in protective custody, he thinks, hey, this is a great opportunity. You know, he says, Mr. Centurion, you have my can I can I talk to them? And because he spoke to the centurion in what? In Greek, you know, he's sophisticated. He knows English, right? All right. The centurion says, "Ooh." Well, yeah, go ahead. Let's see what happens here, right? So then Paul turns around to the crowd that's been ready to kill him. And what, how does he address them? He addresses them in Hebrew and Aramaic in his own language. And then they get very quiet. It says a hush came over everybody. First Greek to the sophisticated Romans. Then Hebrew, Aramaic to the Jews. All right. They get very quiet. And what does he do? He gives them the gospel. He gives them the gospel. He gives them the gospel. Okay. He does it over and over and over and over again. Now, was that a smart thing to do? No. (laughs) Some of you guys in the university, come on. Some of you who have in-laws, come on. Oh, you know the price of following Christ, and you've made a conscious decision that you will not pay that price. You will not light yourself on fire for Jesus Christ. You know when God tells you to do it, and you make a conscious decision. You're not going to do it. You're not going to suffer your mother-in-law's wrath. You're not going to stand against your wife or your husband. You're not going to jeopardize tenure. You're not going to go in front of your dissertation committee. You're not going to be a fool for Christ, are you? Right? Paul, he had no reputation to defend. None. None. And so the minute he gets a chance, what does he do? But he stands up and he says, can I speak to them in Greek? And then he speaks to them in Hebrew. And they all get quiet. And once again, he lights himself on fire for Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, it doesn't get any better. So he's passed around from ruler to ruler. He's passed to this ruler. He's passed to that ruler. He's passed to the next ruler. And finally, after being in custody, how long? Does anybody remember? He was in custody over two years. This man that had the word of God burning inside of him. 
has been in custody for two years, and then he gets put up in front of the two principal leaders of the Roman Empire in this little podunk community, all right, of Israel, all right? And the two leaders, and we pick up the story with Acts 26, verse 19. He's been in custody for two years, and it says in verse 19, Paul's, I'm picking up in the middle of him addressing these two, uh, uh, these two major, major leaders. All right. He says, so, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. He's told them how God called him to himself and told him to preach the gospel. I did not I was not I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should what? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So here Paul is in front of these two leaders, Festus and King Agrippa. King Agrippa's top, Festus under him. Festus has called him King Agrippa to help him decide how to handle Paul. All right. He's preaching to them. He's in front. It's in court. This is not his turf. It's their turf. All right. It would be like us standing in front of the Supreme Court. All right. He's got the top leaders and he says to them, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. God called me to do this. I have not been disobedient. In other words, I'm a man under authority. They were under authority. They'd have to give an answer to Caesar, right? He's under authority. He has not been disobedient. All right. And what is it that he says that he has been faithful in doing? Preaching where? At Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul knows he's going to be sent to Rome. God's made it clear to him. Right. I haven't been unfaithful. I've done it in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria. He said, and I've done it to the Gentiles that. And here's the summary of what he's been preaching that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, today we have a gospel that's truncated, it's compressed, it's it's got no arms and legs. It's it's a quadriplegic gospel. And it is a gospel that tells you that you can have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. And it's a heresy. There is no God who does not demand that we worship him. And the way we worship and love God is by giving him our lives. You imagine my father, year after year, as a disobedient son, right? Well, I wasn't, it's hard to describe me, but anyhow, just things weren't perfect between me and my dad, right? Year after year, you know, it comes around Christmas, his birthday, and I'd say to him, Dad, what do you want this year? And he'd always look at me and he'd say, what? Some of you know. He'd say, what I want from you is what? I want an obedient son. In other words, you want to love me, then obey me. And this is God. And there is no other God. Our God loves us and wants us to love him. How do we love him? We love him by obeying him. And so the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel. And the gospel is for us to believe in God, to love him, and therefore to obey him. Now, it's not all the gospel, but it's a good summary. And any gospel that doesn't call us to repentance, to turning from our evil deeds in faith 
to Jesus Christ. Now, are we saved because we've turned away from our evil deeds? No. Do we turn away from our evil deeds because we have the power to do it? No. Everything that we do that pleases God is a function of us looking to him with faith and saying he will accept my faith. And then he produces the repentance in us. But if he calls you, you can't say, no, I won't repent and expect that he'll give you the gift of faith. And if you want to say, well, faith comes before repentance, I say, fine. But when the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and calls you to repent, to turn from your evil deeds, if you refuse to do it, it's because you don't have faith. Don't ever think it doesn't matter whether or not you repent. Don't ever think it doesn't matter whether or not you produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You remember when the Jewish leaders came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Because everybody that had any sense of what was spiritual at the time was going out to be baptized by John the Baptist. And so the spiritual leaders wanted to appear to be spiritual. They went out and they came to be baptized. And what did John the Baptist say to them? He said, you brood of vipers. You know, who told you to flee the wrath to come? Produce what? Produce what? Fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we don't serve a God who is, uh, you know, impotent and unable to unable to call us and to demand repentance from us. God hasn't changed. This is the New Testament. This is Acts. This is the preaching of the gospel. And at the center of the preaching of the gospel is always Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. And we continue on. And he says what? In verse. OK, in verse twenty one. He says, for this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. Well, for what reason? Was it repentance? No, no, it wasn't repentance for them that scandalized them. It was even to the Gentiles. This is the theme through it all. And they tried to kill him. And he says, verse 22, so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great. And who's he making allusion to there? He's in front of the, you know, the Supreme Court. He's in front of the two. I testify both to small and great. In other words, look, if you're going to get into the kingdom, you have to get in the same way a little child gets in. Small and great it's the same message isn't this beautiful both to small and great what stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place that the Christ the Christ is the Messiah and here's the gospel that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles so here he's summing up everything that is contained in the Old Testament, pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would be the light of the Gentiles. Now, again, the Jews hated the Gentiles. The Jews defined themselves by not being Gentiles, right? All right? And Paul's again saying, this is the gospel. This is the Jewish message that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, it's very interesting. Notice this. While Paul, verse 24, was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Man, I would love to have been there. You know, can you imagine? You're out of your mind, Paul. Now, who is it that's spoken up? Who is it? It's it's who is it? It's the second. It's not the first. Okay, it's not the first. It's not King Agrippa, but it's Festus. Festus, something's burning in him and he can't take it. And he yells out, 
in the presence of his superior. He's a subordinate. He says, you're out of your flipping mind. You've been like off at university too long. All right. And how does Paul respond? But Paul said, verse 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows, and so what he's doing is he's dealing with a subordinate, but he appeals to the king. All right? For the king knows, all right? Hey, Festus, chill out, dude. The king knows what I'm saying, and he knows it's right. All right? For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Think about this. Jesus is raising people from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead several miles outside of the capital of Jerusalem. Everybody knew it. This is the context for Jesus coming into Jerusalem and being welcomed with people throwing their cloaks on the ground in front of his donkey. Everybody knows it. The problem wasn't that Jesus was such an impotent God that nobody felt threatened by him and let him be. The problem was that the whole world was going after him. And of course, King Agrippa knew about it. These things weren't done in the corner. This is no secret Masonic order that's back in some black goo goo place, you know, where you do these like little things and nobody knows about it, but you can feel like it's powerful. All right. This is not the Masonic order. It's not the Eastern Star. All right. Everything about Scripture is done in public so that I can die. Do you understand it? So Paul can die. So you can die. Jesus is pleased by us taking up our crosses and dying. Okay? None of it was done in private. Jesus didn't die in private. Jesus didn't hide the cross because he knew the cross would be scandalous for people that thought their God was powerful and would whoop up on the Romans. Jesus carefully ordered his life to die publicly in Jerusalem with everybody watching. Okay? Right? Do you agree? All right? And so he's looking at the king. He's saying, this stuff wasn't done in private. Everybody knows what's going on. In fact, King Agrippa, I know you believe. Okay? I know what's going on in your heart. Pretty audacious thing to say. Your Honor, I know what's in your heart. You know? Shut up, bailiff. You know, Your Honor, I know what's in your heart. I know because these things were done in public. Now watch what happens. The king knows these matters. I speak to him also with confidence. I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this hasn't been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And how did Agrippa respond? Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And brothers and sisters, many of you here, that's where you're at. You've heard it over and over again. It hasn't escaped your notice. You have heard the gospel. And you're still saying in a little while. Why? Because you love your pension fund. Because you love your pornography. Because you love your drugs, your alcohol. You love your adultery. You love your greed, your envy, your gossip, whatever it is. Because you do not love God. Because to you, to repent would be death. Now, you're going to die one way or the other. You're either going to die in hell eternally separated from the God who made you. Or you're going to die taking up your cross and following him. You're going to die either way. One death will be eternal. You'll have a little bit of life, but then eternal death. The other death is momentary, and then you have eternal life. 
Satan always, always, always lies to you. He is the father of lies. Anything he promises, he will never deliver. And if you look at the lives of those who deny Christ and who save their lives, all right, who refuse to take up their cross and follow Christ, what you'll see is that day by day their bondage becomes greater. Their bondage to pornography, their bondage to greed, until they're reduced to Johnny Carson on the show with a godly, uh, godly man. Years ago I saw where this godly man, Johnny Carson, was like, wow, that this guy had had this successful TV show called Say Amen Somebody. And he was like, I don't know, I never saw the show. Some of you might remember it. And this godly man was saying, talking to Carson, and Carson was just decadent, just decadent trying to get the man to make sexual jokes with him, trying to do anything he could to corrupt this Christian man. And this man would not fail to testify to Jesus Christ. And, and he'd say, what are you doing with your money? <laughs> you know, it's L.A. What are you doing with your money? <laughs> you know? And the man said, well, I'm giving the money to several of the uh, young men and women from my church so that they can go to Bible college. Well, that wasn't a good response for The Tonight Show, you know? So Johnny kept going after him. He made jokes about how his money was going to all his former wives. And this man again testified to his love for Jesus and he was giving his money away. And Johnny kept hitting the money issue. I don't know why. And finally, this godly man turned and he looked at Johnny and he said, you know, Johnny, he said, you can't take it with you. And I've never before seen such public figure completely completely without words. Carson shut his mouth and it was this painful moment where God broke in because of the death of one of his servants publicly. He lit himself on fire. He pointed to the grave. He said, Johnny, you can't take it with you. And you look at all our public figures that our magazines are filled with and what does their life consist of? Day after day after day, a growing bondage. And the Apostle Paul he looks at this great leader, this great representative of the Roman Empire, and he says to him, I know you believe. I know you trust the prophets. I know you know that this Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. I know you know the whole Old Testament points to him, the Lamb of God whose blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Don't you believe? And he says, in a little while, in a little while, you may convince me to believe in Jesus Christ, to be a Christian. So, I ask you this morning, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Now, this is not me asking if this is your church. I'm not asking you if I'm your pastor. I'm simply one of a long line of men who have stood up in public and said, this Jesus that we worship is the only God and he has poured his blood out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Do you believe? Now this morning, in our worship service, we're going to have a baptism of Justin Clampett. Justin, where are you? Would you stand up? Come here, please. Would you please? And so here we have Paul in front of this great king and this great leader. And the apostle Paul is saying... I know you believe, don't you? And he says, in a little while. Now, if I were to turn to Justin and say, do you believe? What would Justin's response be? He's asked if he can be baptized. What is baptism? What is it? Baptism 
is lighting yourself on fire in public. Do we baptize in private? No, we don't ever do that. As a matter of fact, we're hoping at the new church we can have a pool outside at the front in the entrance that maybe might have people that are playing soccer on Sunday morning able to look over and see us doing it. And it would probably be good to do all our baptisms in Showalter Fountain. I mean, seriously, so that every single one of you has the privilege of lighting yourself on fire in public. That's pretty public, isn't it? And so what he's doing this morning is he's saying, no, it's not a little while. It's not manana. It's not tomorrow. When is it? That you're going to confess your faith today, right now, well, past, past, tomorrow, today, today, now, and you want to do it publicly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes, in front of everybody, in front of everybody. Now he knows how to play basketball in front of everybody, right? So wouldn't it be fitting that this morning a young man who, and I say this knowing what I'm saying, whose life is in conformity with his faith, who has given evidence to us all that he has a good conscience and has produced fruit in keeping with repentance. Is that our testimony about this young man? I'll bet even his relatives will say yes. And if your relatives say yes, you know that you've produced fruit in keeping with repentance. Even your brother is smiling at you. And so here we have a young man who is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not like King Agrippa. He's not like Festus saying, you guys are flipping mad. He's a young man who is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with him in front of you, tugging at all your heart springs, especially those of you who are his family, I say to you, so what do you with this Christ? What do you with this Christ? Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ and this young man stands before you unembarrassed? Would you do this in front of like Bobby Knight? Sure. Yeah. How about Mike Davis? Would you? Mm-hmm. So who's your favorite professional basketball player? Um, That's hard, huh? Yeah, I don't really have one. Well, name one you do like. Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller. Would you do it in front of Reggie? Sure. Would you call Reggie to believe in Jesus Christ? If you had the chance, or would you just talk basketball? I would. You think? Yeah. Do you think he would, Scott? Where's Scott? Oh, he's getting the kids. Do you think he would, Scott? If he had a chance, if he had a chance to witness to Reggie Miller, would he talk basketball or Jesus to Reggie? Well, he says both. (laughs) Well, brothers and sisters, I just call you to believe in Jesus Christ. Please don't come to a worship service unless you're going to worship the one we're worshiping. And this is for all of you individually. I don't care how many churches you've been a member of. I don't care how godly your grandfather or your grandmother was. This Jesus stands before you today saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter how hard your heart has been. This Christ is still crucified in your presence this very day, and he's calling to you to come to him. Okay? Now, one final application. Set yourself on fire. Ain't no big deal. You know what I'm saying? Amen?
So how are you going to do it this week? Where is your Festus? Where is your Agrippa? Who are you going to light yourself on fire for? Huh? Let's baptize him. Okay? Now, what I'd like to ask you to do...